Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. You must breastfeed, says the medical professional. Don't you dare sleep with your baby, says the same medical professional. The tension between how we feed our babies and how we sleep with them is a real problem for many new families. As primates, we're expected to stay close to our young, and that includes nighttime, and this has profound implications for our feeding journey. As we discussed last week, breast or chest feeding grief is real and many families struggle with it. And some of this comes from advice that may be well-intentioned but harms that feeding relationship. This week I got to talk to the expert herself, Dr. Helen Ball, researcher of the effects of sleep location on feeding and vice versa about this very issue. She also happens to be one of my favorite people to talk to, so this episode was an absolute joy for me. If you think that how you sleep doesn't affect how you feed your baby, or how you feed your baby doesn't affect how you sleep, you're likely in for a bit of a surprise. I am so thrilled to have with me today, Dr. Helen Ball. For anyone who bizarrely wouldn't know, uh, she is a professor of anthropology at Durham University and director of the university's Parent Infant Sleep Center. She pioneers the study of infant sleep and the parent-infant sleep relationship from a biosocial perspective. Broadly defined, her research examines sleep ecology, particularly of infants, young children, and their parents. This encompasses attitudes and practices regarding infant sleep, behavioral and physiological monitoring of infants and their parents during sleep, infant sleep development, and the discordance between cultural sleep preferences and biological sleep needs. She is also the co-founder of the Baby Infant Sleep Information Source, a website that provides research evidence about biologically normal infant sleep for families and professionals. And I am so happy you're here. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's great to be here. So before we talk about your research in general, how did you become interested in studying infant sleep and more generally this parent-infant sleep relationship? Well, let's see. I didn't start out as an infant sleep researcher or even a sleep researcher. Um, I was a primatologist when I did my PhD. So I was studying monkeys around a Caribbean, well, chasing monkeys around a Caribbean <laughs> island off of the coast of Puerto Rico, which was fabulous. It was a great I, place to do my PhD research. So I was about to say, um, why did you ever leave? That yeah, well, I'll tell you why. So um, after I finished my PhD, I got a job. Well. Um, just as I graduated, I got pregnant with my eldest daughter. So we went, um, we went and did a temporary job for a year while I was applying for permanent jobs. And then the permanent job that I got was over here in Durham. So I've been in Durham now for like 27 years. And the first summer after being hired at Durham, I went back to Puerto Rico, tried to go and do, you know, a summer of field research like I always would have done. And my husband and daughter just spent the entire summer playing on the beach and, you know, and I was off every morning at seven o'clock on a boat out to this bloody island of monkeys and not back until <laughs> seven o'clock at night. And I thought, I don't want to do this. I want to be where they are doing what they're doing. And it just became very apparent quite quickly that having a field site that was, you know, thousands of miles away that required me to spend an awful lot of time there in order to collect data, et cetera, with kids and a family on, in a job on the other side of the world just wasn't going to work. So I thought, right, something's going to have to give here. What's it going to be? And I already knew about Jim McKenna's research with mother baby co-sleeping. And I also knew that he had previously been a primatologist. And I thought, hmm, well, if he can do that, I've been trained the exact same way he has. I can switch to study, and nobody was studying mother-baby sleep in anthropology in the UK. So I thought, right, that's going to be me from now on. So that's what I did. And, of course, it didn't, it wasn't without um, influence, I suppose, that it was a time when I was having my own children and, and co-sleeping and nighttime parenting and everything was kind of like high on my personal agenda, that this was something I was really interested in and how how other people were managing all of this. And then it turned out that when we got this research up and running and we started doing our first video studies that my youngest daughter was a baby. So she became our first guinea pig. So, you know, 
classic thing of academics experimenting on their own children. I know, I've done the same. So, <laughs> but it also makes sense. I mean, you think about the primatology and looking at sleep from a biological perspective, we are mammals and we are primates. So, I mean, there is a natural, you've, you've seen it all in the wild and have kind of that basis to, to yeah, start from. Yeah, it, it, was a, it was a logical progression to me, absolutely. Yeah. It didn't require yeah. me to learn any new kind of like methods. The literature kind of con it continues in the same sort of area. Um, yeah. I just had to learn what the non-anthropologists who study infant sleep were getting up to. And they don't get up to very good things, I will say that much. So... <laughs> my perspective on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So as people probably know, I mean, you've covered so many different areas of sleep, we could talk for, you know, two days to try and get through it all, but we won't, we're going to focus today on helping families understand that kind of nuanced relationship between breastfeeding and sleep, because you've done a ton of work in this field. And I, you know, Every time I work with families, it is one of those things that is still so poorly misunderstood. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we can kind of get in on that. Now, you've spoken in papers and whatnot about evolution-informed infant maternal health. And so, as we know, a lot of your work does focus on these evolutionarily normal behaviors for infants. But starting with this, can you explain to people exactly what we were just getting at, that infants are mammals, mm -hmm. and they are precocial mammals, and you say secondarily... Um, altricial mammals, what does this mean? What do people need to take home from that knowledge about infant behaviors, particularly with respect to feeding and sleep? Okay. All right. Well, if we think about mammal babies and we think we're talking about the placental mammals, we're not talking about anything strange like kangaroos and, <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, you know, you can broadly break down the placental mammals into two groups, the altricial, the, the ones who produce altricial babies and the ones who produce precocial babies. And altricial babies are babies that have a short gestation period, are born in this really undeveloped state. They can't see, they can't hear, they can't call, they can barely move. And they're sequestered in nests, basically, for warmth and safety. They're born in large litters. And mothers go off and forage and leave them in the, in the nests for long periods. And when the mums come back to feed them, which is only a couple of times a day, if you think about things like rabbits and mice and all sorts of small furry things, those mammal mothers produce milk that is very high in fat because it has to satiate these babies for long periods. And basically all they do for a period of several weeks is sleep and grow. They just develop in the nest. When they leave the nest, they can see, they can hear, they can walk, they can follow their mothers, etc. They're fully functioning little animals. In the other group, precocial mammals, we've got babies that have a much longer gestation period. They're born singly or in pairs, and they're much more well-developed at the point of birth. So we're thinking now about horses and antelopes and, and cows and goats and so the babies can see, they can hear, they can call, they're fully functional at birth, they can stand up within you know, minutes or hours after birth, or they can cling to their mothers if they're monkeys or you know, grasping animals. So they're not left anywhere by their mothers, they follow their mothers, they're following or carrying species, and that means they can feed at will whenever they want to. So the mothers don't produce, waste lots of energy producing high fat milk. They produce low fat milk that the babies feed on frequently. And it's high in sugar because the babies need energy because they're doing all of this moving around or clinging. They're expending energy. They're not just lying around sleeping all the time. <laughs> so you've got these two kind of patterns of infant development and as a consequence of types of maternal care that go along with them and types of feeding that go along with them. Then when we look at human babies, they're precocial because they're born after a long gestation period in singly or in pairs. And they can see, they can hear, they can call all of that when they're born. But what they can't do is hang on to their moms or stand up and walk and follow them. And this is to do with having poorly developed neuromuscular control. And this is in part a consequence of the fact that we're a large brain species and we cannot complete anywhere near as much of our 
brain growth in utero as other animals can because we just physically can't sustain that longer pregnancy or get a large, larger-brained baby out of the birth canal. So human infants, in the past, we've called them secondarily altricial, but people have kind of changed that terminology a bit now because they're not really altricial at all. They're precocial, but they're unusually helpless. And they're unusually <laughs> helpless because they don't have any neuromuscular canal. They just lie there and be floppy. They can't do anything. So it's the responsibility of the carers to keep the baby close to, you know, one of them for safety, for warmth. And of course, precocial babies and humans are no exception, need to feed on a regular basis. Mums produce milk that's low in fat and high in sugar. The high sugar content for humans grows the large brain. So during all of the first year, a human infant's brain is growing at the same rate that it grew as a fetus, which is really unusual because most mammals' brain growth slows down once they've been born. But our babies keep growing at that fetal rate until they're a year old and then their brain growth slows down. And so that first year and what's happening to the baby in that first year is really important. I actually think that's hilarious. We now just go to, you know, especially helpless because that seems way less scientific than secondarily <laughs> altricial, but <laughs> kind of gone down a notch of terminology, but that's okay. So with respect to this, I mean, it's, I think one of the things that comes to mind for me is this idea of the breast milk and that in terms of the amount of feeding that's needed for an animal like ours, because I see some of the arguments people say, well, you know, there's the brain growth that it's going to, but they're not expending energy the way cows, everyone are, because they're expending energy through all that movement and grasping mm -hmm. and going along. So is it really just going to that neurological development that is the need for so much feeding for our human primates? Well, I think it is, yeah, because the brain is the most energetically expensive organ that we've got. And, the you know, the baby's brain is making all of these neural connections all of the time. And even when the baby's asleep, it's not going into deep sleep for very long where it's kind of like damping down all of this brain activity. It's carrying on 24 hours a day, you know. It spends more time in REM sleep in infancy than it ever will in the rest of its life. So, you know, that's energetically expensive stuff. So, which is good to know. I'm glad you brought that up because I think there is an important understanding that, again, the feeding sleep relationship here is what we're getting to is this mm -hmm. idea that sleep is actually very calorically active. Is, I don't know if that's the right word, but it, it, babies need calories even to sleep for what they're doing in sleep. And mother's milk is feeding. So, in terms of that frequent feeding, just to clarify, this is not just during the day. It exists overnight it's as well. 24 hours round the clock. Babies are born with no circadian rhythm. So they don't have a day-night clock. They don't know, you know, that nighttime is when parents want to sleep. They just know every couple of hours they need to feed and they sleep in between times. Okay. Perfect. So I want to start at your work in uh, at birth, really. So you've done work on postnatal wards, mm -hmm. looking at this relationship between the kind of the bi-directional relationship between sleep and breastfeeding in terms of, I guess, the ecology, how we sleep affects yeah. Yeah. the breastfeeding relationship. You did work kind of removing barriers to mother-infant access at night. Can you tell us a bit about these studies and what you found with respect to the initiation and continuation of breastfeeding? So our evolutionary sort of um, perspective led us to suggest that if rooming in is particularly good for mums and babies for the establishment of breastfeeding, etc., and is better than taking the baby away and putting it in a separate nursery at night, which is what the traditional, traditional as in the last 50 or 60 years within in hospitals has been, then surely even closer, based on everything that we knew about the physiology and the evolution of feeding, surely even closer should be better for establishing breastfeeding. So I managed to, well, he didn't take much persuading, really. He was a really nice man who was a neonatologist who kind of like had oversight of the 
the postnatal ward at our big tertiary hospital and I was explaining this issue to him one day and saying what I really need to do is to be able to randomize mums and babies to different sleep conditions so that then I can know that it's just the sleep condition that is making a difference not all the other stuff that goes along with it I said but I can't do that for women at home because they they don't have to do what I tell them to do they're <laughs> watching them yeah, I said, what I really need is to be able to do this in a hospital in the postnatal ward where people tend to comply with what you've kind of asked them to do. And he looked at me and he goes, do you know what? I think we might be able to do that. So that was the start of these randomised trials that we did on the postnatal ward. So the first one was about randomizing mums and babies to sleep in three different conditions. One was normal rooming in where they had the bassinet at the side of the bed. And the other two were closer proximity where there was no barrier between the mum and the baby. And one of them was just the mum having the baby on the bed mattress next to her. And the other was having the baby in what we called a sidecar crib. It was like a three-sided bassinet that clamped to the frame of the mother's yeah. hospital bed so the mums that we recruited were all first-time mums so they'd never had a baby before they were having a vaginal delivery or they were anticipating having a vaginal delivery with with minimal or no anesthesia so just gas and air if they had any kind of uh, epidural or whatever we had to exclude them from the study and they had to agree to two things and it was a big ask that we were asking them in this study so they, these were brave women they had to agree to be randomly allocated to one of the three sleep conditions so they weren't allowed to choose and they had to agree to have a camera on a pole <laughs> at the bottom of their hospital bed so that we could watch what was going on during the night. And right after birth, that's exactly when you want to be on camera for everyone to see. Yeah. <laughs> but fortunately, there were 64 brave women who, who went through with this. We recruited more, but some of them ended up having epidurals and things. So, so there were 64 brave women who went through with this. And um, what we looked at on our videos was the frequency of feeding, the, the number of successful breastfeeding attempts where we could see the baby latching on and we could hear swallowing and sucking, attempted feeding attempts where the, the mum was trying to interest the baby or the baby was interested in getting on the breast but didn't quite manage it, uh, the number of times that the mum responded to the baby's kind of feeding cues and all of that kind of stuff. And what we found was that the successful feeding happened twice as frequently when the babies were in the sidecar crib and the bed condition compared with being in the standalone bassinet. So the mums, you know, that, that close proximity, that ability of the baby to be able to alert the mum to its feeding cues just by moving, it didn't have to kind of get to the point of crying or anything like that, was enough to prompt the mum to try to feed the baby and they ended up feeding the baby more frequently. And of course, that's got all sorts of knock-on consequences then for a kind of mom's physiology and her confidence and, and all sorts of stuff. But that, that difference in the frequency of feeding, successful feeding bouts, um, even the, the difference in successful attempted bouts because they had the same kind of pattern was was really the the, the key finding, the key thing that we'd wanted to, to find, you know, whether there was a difference. So even going back to that, you know, attempted bouts. So these were ones that weren't successful, but the baby tried. What do you think it is about that just added difference that leads baby to not even try as much? So... What we saw on the videos was that when the mum was uh, had the baby in the rooming in, like in the standalone bassinet, the babies would quite frequently wake. They'd start to cue that they were hungry. They'd stuff their fists in their mouths and they'd do the head rocking thing and clicking their tongues. But they never got themselves so worked up to the point of crying. And they would just eventually, they'd search around for where their mom was, couldn't find her. And, and after a couple of minutes, they went back to sleep. So it wasn't, you know, they weren't desperate for a feed or something. It was just a feeding opportunity that if their mom had been there and responded, they would have fed or they would have tried to feed. But she wasn't. They couldn't find her. And they just went back to sleep. Um, so in the middle of the night, mums were missing these feeding opportunities that they otherwise might have and I think then the the relevance of that is that the production of, of prolactin every time the baby touches the nipple. What you're describing is 
we're talking about it as this is a missed opportunity. This kind of situation isn't ideal from a breastfeeding perspective. Mm -hmm. But you could say the same thing. And I imagine there would be a lot of non-anthropological sleep people saying, look at that great little self-soothing that that baby Mm -hmm. does and gets back to sleep. Mm -hmm. And isn't that an ideal as to what you want? Mm -hmm. And, you know, so outside of feeding, I don't even know how to like go from there. I'm just going like, this is the same thing being viewed in two totally different lenses. And I don't know, I I guess we'll have to get there. It's just my thought of hearing that. And I don't even know how to put that together into a coherent thought because it's just, yeah, it's, it's your frame of reference when you see that behavior and do you think, oh yes, prioritizing sleep, that's really, really important. Or do you think missed feeding opportunity? This is a precocial mammal. It should be, you know, feeding as frequently as it can in the first few days. Yeah. And that's, I think what it gets to is, I mean, it does seem like feeding frequently would be really important for development. And I don't know, you know, I know there's a lot of research on health outcomes of even that ever feeding at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So we do see there is some, something going on in that early time, but it's, um, it is interesting that it really does highlight this this tension between mm-hmm. sleep and feeding that seems yeah. to exist. Some babies who are born following medicated deliveries are very sleepy. Yeah. And then and then they don't feed because they're very sleepy and moms can't interest them in feeding no matter how much they try. And then those babies end up having to get supplemented or whatever because they're experiencing, you know, various yeah. conditions that are a consequence of of not being fed frequently enough. So let's talk about the prolactin. So why is it important that, I mean, we are just discussing here how, you know, we see the missed feeding opportunity as, ah, no, please come back versus someone whose focus is on sleep. Great, get all the sleep you want. We're going to keep baby asleep. And aren't they learning this great self-soothing skill, which they're not. That's that's not a skill they're actually learning at that point. I'm just going to clarify. So why is prolactin so important? As everybody who's ever kind of had a baby will know, It takes two or three days after you've given birth for your milk to come in copiously. So, you know, that this this thing called lactogenesis 2, which is when your boobs go rock hard and hot and, you know, you you feel like they're going to explode. And that's that's your milk coming in. So the more frequently the baby goes to the breast in the first two or three days, the quick, more quickly your your prolactin levels rise. So each time the baby goes to the breast, you get a prolactin surge. And after a while, the prolactin will fall back down. And if there's a, a long enough period between feeds, it'll be back at baseline by the time the next time the baby feeds, and then it'll go up and down again and up and down again. If you're feeding frequently enough that the prolactin doesn't drop all the way back down to zero before the next feed happens, it raises the baseline because it goes down and then up again and then up again and then up again. So you have to reach a particular threshold for your milk to come in. So the more frequently you're feeding, the faster your prolactin gets to that threshold, the sooner your milk comes in, the more copiously your milk comes in. So physiologically, this is good for mum because she knows her body's working. She knows that she can feed her baby. Um, she feels more confident about that. So women's when, when women's milk comes in early and copiously, it gives them confidence in their ability to feed their baby. So, you know, it's a win-win all round. The baby's getting, you know, the baby's been having colostrum, but it's on to mature milk faster. And everybody's satisfied that, the, you know, the baby's getting enough. It's, yeah. it's an important thing to have happen. And I could imagine, I mean, the gaps when you talk about people trying to get really long stretches overnight, you're going to have a real drop down no matter how high you were prior mm-hmm. to that. That overnight feed is essential for that period. Mm-hmm. And there's also some research that suggests, and this has been done in things like rabbits, so it's not as clear cut. Um, that this works in humans, but there's some suggestion that it does. And that is that the more frequently you feed in the early days of breastfeeding, you produce more prolactin receptors, which are what sustain your mm-hmm. milk production in the long term after you switch from the kind of the the endocrine control to the autocrine control. So when your brain stops controlling it and your boobs start controlling it of mm-hmm. their own accord. Um so so it you kind of like you you run you run on on the first system 
for a few weeks and then you kind of your milk supply regulates itself and calms down and and starts you know regulating its own supply and demand system and it's it's argued that the the number of prolactin receptors that you have produced in those first few days help you to regulate that system so it can be important not just for breastfeeding initiation, but for breastfeeding continuation. Well, maybe that's why I've been nursing for 11 years almost. <laughs> that, that would stop there. So. <laughs> I think it's regulated yet. Just tons of receptors. I don't know. That's all I have apparently are prolactin receptors. All right. So if we move from the hospital to the home. Mm -hmm. Because as you said, you couldn't really study at home because you can't tell people what to do at home. But you have done observational studies looking at this very complicated relationship between sleep and breastfeeding, mm -hmm. depending on sleep location. And also, I mean, the work I love that you've done, too, is looking at how mothers perceive this relationship between mm -hmm. sleep and feeding and everything. So you've found a relationship between sleep location and breastfeeding, and it may not be causal. I'm not suggesting one causes the other, but there is a relationship there. What, in terms of breastfeeding success, so what have you found with respect to that? And, you know, what does it mean for women also with that? So not just what have you found with that relationship, but how women feel about that relationship between where they sleep with their babies, their feeding relationship, and which dictates kind of their choices. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're kind of linking together several studies that we've done here. I know, sorry, you've just done so much, and I'm just gonna, you know, <laughs> throw them all in. It's okay, so, so one of the studies that we did, we were interested in following up women who had initiated breastfeeding immediately after birth, and looking at what their breastfeeding outcomes were as a function of where they had their babies sleep during the night. So we had 870 women at the beginning of that. And we followed them up every week, uh, having them just answer on it via a telephone keypad, answering yes, no questions by pressing one and zero. You know, whether they'd had, whether they'd breastfed their baby, whether they, that week, whether they'd given their baby any other kinds of food and whether any of that food was solid food. And then we asked them where their baby had slept, whether their baby had been in bed with them at all that week whether it had been in bed with them for uh, more than one night and then been bed sharing with their babies at least once a week in the first 13 weeks were twice as likely to still be breastfeeding at six months as those who hadn't had their babies in bed. And it was kind of this dose relationship. Was the ones who almost never brought their babies into bed um, had the lowest kind of breastfeeding curve. And the ones who sometimes brought their babies into bed had the moderate breastfeeding curve. And the ones who brought the babies into bed regularly had this much higher breastfeeding curve. And the difference was something like from the, from the highest to the lowest was 60% still breastfeeding at six wow. months versus 30% still breastfeeding. So there's this, very, there's this very strong relationship between these two things. And it's hard to know, as you say, whether it's, because of the physiological um, relationship between, you know, the frequency of feeding at night and being able to sustain breastfeeding for that long, or whether it's, it just makes nighttime breastfeeding so much easier that you feel capable of carrying it on for longer, or whether it's those women who are most motivated to breastfeed for a long time are the ones who figure out bringing the baby into bed is one of the things that's going to help yeah. them. So, yeah. you know, there's, there's many ways to unpack the story about what's going on there. But certainly when we've done interview studies, asking mums about that relationship, those who are very committed to breastfeeding definitely figure out that bringing the baby into the bed is the way that they are going to be able to kind of keep keep up that nighttime feeding and that sleep fragmentation that goes along with breastfeeding at night. And I do see so many families and women that get there, almost it's not necessarily the feeding. They're not worried about the breastfeeding relationship. They're not, I mean, it's that happy accident that comes along with it. It's about sleep. Mm -hmm. It's about, yeah. I need more sleep and this it's is getting me more sleep. Your baby's needs and your needs in the kind of the most efficient way possible. Right. Which, you know, when we think about this, going back to this whole evolutionarily, you know, derived history here, it does make sense that mm -hmm. we would evolve, co-evolve with our babies to 
have these behaviors that would benefit both as it goes, right? It's not, yeah. So it's, I mean, I think that's so important. And I do, I see so many families that really have kind of resisted the bed sharing because of so many messages that go along. That's a topic for another day. But as soon as they embrace it, it's just this relief of, oh, I feel like I wake up like a new person. I feel, you know, whole that whole idea of getting up and having to feed and or trying to settle without a feed and get it, you know, it, it's not what babies want to do. So it doesn't really so make sense. You're stressed out, and then when you're stressed out, you can't get back to sleep quickly. And yeah. Yeah. And so what would you say with this? I mean, because with one of your studies where you looked at perceptions of sleep location and everything, there was also the perception of kind of topping up with respect to sleep. So, and from a, I would love to hear your perspective on it because my understanding is from a biological perspective and from research, topping up does not facilitate better sleep for babies and whatnot, kind of using formula before bed and everything. But what are the thoughts around this and what's the reality around that? So what we found was that, um, so we did focus groups with mums who were both breastfeeding and formula feeding. And we were asking them about how they viewed the relationship between feeding and sleeping. And, you know, the, the, the dominant view that I had heard 20 years previously in interviews was that if you want to get a good night's sleep, you've got to give your baby formula because that's the only thing that's going to work, a formula and solids um, you know, baby rice in the bottle or baby cereal or whatever, and a big top-up feed before bedtime. So the baby's absolutely stuffed, and then you'll be able to get some sleep. But in these more recent focus groups, what we heard was that, we did hear that, and it was still kind of the, the dominant theme that was going on. But there were also now breastfeeding mums who were sort of pushing back on that and going, no, that's what my auntie says, that's what my mum says, you need to give him a bottle and solids, she says, but I don't think I do. If I want to breastfeed him, I just need to work out how to make that compatible with me getting some sleep. Yeah. So the 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 moms tend to, you know, there's obviously there's a continuum. There's not just kind of like two polar opposites in all of this. But the moms who viewed the baby's sleep as being something that they needed to be in control of, um, felt that they needed to have a schedule or a routine and the baby had to fit around their needs. They didn't fit around the baby's needs. And if they weren't getting enough sleep, they had to do something to fix the baby. And, you know, there was a a very sad sort of um, uh, example in some of our our quotes of a a young mom who'd asked her mom what she should do. And her mom, when the baby was six weeks old and her mom had said, do the tough love thing by which she meant just leave the baby to cry. And she said in her, in her uh, focus group, so I did it. And after two weeks, the baby slept all night and I'm going, this was a six week old baby. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) It it worked as far as she was concerned. It worked because it got her the solution to the, to the end point that she wanted, which was the baby didn't disturb her at night. But on the other hand, of course, you know, we we also had stories from from breastfeeding mums who were just, well, what I do is bring him into bed if if he's disturbing me and I need to get a good night's sleep, I bring him into bed and then he feeds and I sleep and it doesn't disturb me a great deal and that's how it works for us. So, you know, there's 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 a myriad of different things that go on in between, but these, you know, these two kind of extreme positions really are, are um, you know... <sighs> That breaks my heart. Six weeks of age. Like it's, I just remember six week old babies. They're little, they're very, very small. I don't imagine, you know, and two weeks, that feels like a long time too, to go. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very extremely early to try and sleep, train a baby six weeks. Yeah. Well, it took a long time. How could it not? (laughs) Well, but I mean, the thing is, at least in North America and particularly the United States, I mean, there are a lot of people that are now you start sleep training at birth. And Mm. I know, you know, even in in Canada here, I know of a, a doctor who has a huge practice in a major city here who advocates basically, yep, if you're going to be my client, we sleep train right away. That's how it works. And it's just pushed on everyone that walks in the door that you are to do it starting right away. 
It's not six months. It's not anything. It's basically as a newborn, you get on that schedule and you make it clear what's, and I think, Mm -hmm. you know, how do you come up with this? Again, why I say the people outside anthropology talking about sleep have some really weird ideas about sleep and breastfeeding for that matter too. So it's, um, so here's where I want to get to now. So we have mother perception, everything, but in the research, one of the things that always comes up and questions I get from families too, is that we know that breastfeeding is one of the predictors Mm -hmm. of night wakings, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that when we look at studies of reported night wakings and sleep, breastfeeding is typically a very significant predictor of how many night wakings are reported. And in a positive, like not positive, like good manner, but positive, more breastfeeding, more night wakings kind of relationship. And this is often thought to be a bad thing for mm-hmm. sleep. And therefore, people look at changing the breastfeeding relationship in response mm-hmm. to sleep. So again, as you've shown, we can have this, you know, the sleep changes the breastfeeding relationship where and how we sleep can have an effect. But it also seems to go the other way that people look to shift the breastfeeding to affect sleep. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, what do you think the interpretation of breastfeeding causing night wakings is a fair interpretation based on your research or is it perhaps something else? So I think there's a number of things going on here. Um, So definitely, you know, in the early months, the first three or four months when the baby still needs to feed regularly, um, then, then breastfeeding is related to sleep fragmentation. There's no doubt about that. Breastfeeding mums get the same amount of sleep overall as, as formula feeding mums, but there's, you know, there is more weight, night waking, and that is that the fragmentation is experienced as poorer quality sleep. They feel as though they're uh, have had less, less good sleep, if you like, because we're all used to this idea of sleeping like logs, yeah. you know, um, which uh, also can be challenged as being evolutionary, whether it's evolutionary or normal, but it's, it's, it's our experience of what is normal. So that's what we expect. So the feeding, I think, affects mother's sleep in two ways. One, it's the baby. The baby wakes and the baby wants to be fed. But also it's the physiology of breastfeeding because after a while your boobs fill up and they wake you up, whether the baby has continued to sleep or not. So, you know, one of the things that we found with with our actigraph studies is that when we look at the difference between breastfed and formula fed babies over kind of the first four or five months of life, the active watches indicate that the babies are waking equally frequently. Their longest sleep periods are, you know, no different from one another. All of the mothers were overestimating. So when we asked, we had the mothers fill in sleep diaries as well, say, you know, how long was your baby's longest sleep last night? And all of the mothers were overestimating their baby's longest sleep. But the formula feeding mothers were overestimating more than the breastfeeding mothers. And I suspect that has to do with the fact that sooner or later, the mum's boobs wake her up. And so then, you know, breastfeeding mums, will tend to wake up more frequently whether or not their baby wakes them and then she realizes that actually her baby might be ready for a feed so 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 there's there's two things going on there and then i think there's the the kind of the the, the what happens longer term so the the breastfeeding bed sharing relationship is one that promotes nighttime feeding you know the baby's there the boobs are there the baby just wants to nurse to go back to sleep etc etc so you know that then continues for a longer time period and for some people it doesn't bother them at all you know they just get on with it that's what night times look like but other people tend to to kind of feel as though this is going on for too long I don't want my child nursing every two or three hours through the night until they're a year old or whatever so then there's this kind of there's this sort of social pressure and it might not be coming from anybody other than inside your own head but at some point there's this kind of I need this to stop now I want to draw a line under this I don't want to keep doing this for anymore and then people start to get anxious about whether they're ever going to be able to either break the relationship between sleeping with their baby and breastfeeding or 
get their baby out of the bed. Um, and then that begins to create issues if they're unhappy with that situation, I think. What bothers me about it is how often people are told the answer is night weaning and mm-hmm. how we see that push, even if it's like, no, 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 maintain your breastfeeding relationship, but not at night. And that starts really young, too. That's another kind of way to go through. So what feed at night anymore, therefore. Just, yeah. That's it. Yes, they don't need it. They are getting all they need from solids at six months of age, apparently. Only if, I mean, my kids didn't take to solids till way after a year. They were holy boob kids. But um, so what do you think the risks are to the breastfeeding experience from this view, this kind of idea that breastfeeding causes wakings with our our cultural obsession with sleep more than anything? What is the risk? Is there a risk to the breastfeeding relationship from this? Or is it so far established by the time people are older that it doesn't really have that negative an effect? Well, I think I think the night weaning thing is a risk because, you know, because because we produce prolactin more at night than we do during the day. When you stop breastfeeding at night, it's often the case that your milk supply starts to dwindle, even if you're doing a bit of feeding in the morning or a bit of feeding in the in the evening. You're not feeding frequently enough to keep the prolactin high enough that your boobs think, oh, I need to keep making milk here. So, you know, it's the same supply and removal kind of relationship. So I have found in talking to women that the experience of some is that night weaning without the intention of weaning completely, but just night weaning very quickly leads to complete cessation of of production of milk. Really? that that they hadn't anticipated that they thought that they were just going to be able to stop feeding at night and still feed a couple of times a day but you know for some women that just doesn't work they can't sustain lactation if they're not feeding more regularly so just to go off that which is a bit of a tangent but does that happen do you find later because at some point kids do start sleeping through the night much later than most people expect just to throw that out there and you know, at, at that point, there is a natural period of not feeding overnight. But at that point, I find most people that breastfeeding relationship can still continue during the day without much concern for supply. Is that just because it differs when it kids are older? It, it seems, yeah, this this phenomenon that I'm talking about that, that people have discussed in interviews is seems to happen between I would say six months and a year, but for some people, I think it happens a bit sooner because they they try to night wean, you know, earlier, like four months or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden they find that their breastfeeding kind of ability has disappeared and they didn't expect that. And that comes as yeah. quite a shock. Okay. So it is. But once we're kind of beyond a year, there's probably enough prolactin in there to sustain if you're... So if a child is sleeping through later, early, like just past a year, that's okay when it naturally happens, but it's almost this forced stop of it that is the issue. Mm-hmm. Going back to the evolutionary, like the link to sleep, what is the effect between the breastfeeding and the development of the circadian rhythm? Because, and and does sleep location affect any of that as well? That's a good question. And it's one that we were trying to answer in one of these studies where we were, where we were looking at the difference between the breastfed and the formula-fed babies. We wanted to try and find out whether the the melatonin in the mother's milk entrained the baby's circadian rhythm. And we we haven't really got a good handle on it, I don't think. And part of that was the difficulty of getting good samples of urine, et cetera, from the babies and the mums and the milk and trying to match them all up. You'd get, you know, some samples, some some urine samples, but no milk samples. And (laughs) And it was like the number that we got clear samples from was not enough to do a good statistical analysis on but yes there is this there is this question of of whether breastfed babies get their circadian rhythm faster because they're receiving their mum's um uh circadian hormones at the appropriate times and it also raises the question of if you pump and feed your baby your expressed milk whether you you've got to label it <laughs> milk or evening milk and whether you're going to screw up their scadian rhythms with all of that yeah it's interesting but I don't think we know the answer to it 
you know, really clearly. Yeah. Is there a relationship to sleep location? Like I think about, you know, the co-sleeping relationship, if you are bed sharing, there's a lot of information kind of being passed. You know, we talk about babies picking up on heart rates of parents and everything like that, kind of mirroring that synchrony at a physiological level. And I think about nighttime as a period where our physiology changes mm-hmm. is do we know if there's anything in terms of building that rhythm from where babies sleep i don't think we do know that um i can't think of any research that's looked at circadian development and sleep location off the top of my head from a logical perspective it mm-hmm. would make sense i mean yeah. but i think you yeah you know, have it because if your heart rate's slowing more at night or whatever else is happening, that's another cue for development. Oh, this is the time when this happens. And this is, you know, sleep as we go. So it's, um, I, I think it makes sense. So <laughs> it's just going to be my little theory um, as we go. So, okay. Another so research if, question to put on the list. Yeah. There you go. See, you can never retire. You just have to keep never, working forever never. and ever and ever. That's just how it goes. So we've gotten up to a year in my mind here. We've got birth, the effect on feeding. We've got this first year in which, you know, the night weaning is a problem, but sleep location, there's differences in how people navigate it. Mm -hmm. But what about when we think about breastfeeding beyond a year and this potential relationship to sleep? So what would be an evolutionary argument for this type of feeding and suckling behavior, like especially at night? So Mm -hmm. why, why would kids continue beyond this point? Is there an evolutionary adaptation there? Good question. It's past a year is something that we haven't specifically researched. And I think we're getting into the domain of the psychologists more there than the anthropologists. Um, because, you know, we're on, into separation anxiety territory and, you know, cognitive development and all of this kind of stuff. You know, it would make sense from an evolutionary point of view for kids to be in close proximity to their carers throughout toddlerhood because they're not vigilant during sleep, they're not capable of defending themselves, etc. They're not capable of thermoregulating, you know, under under exposed conditions and all the rest of it. So you would you would expect them to be sleeping in a family group. Whether or not you'd expect them to still be feeding, I don't know. I mean I think when you look cross-culturally, there are some cultures that continue to breastfeed for a prolonged period, but there are others that stop around about a year. I think from an immunological point of view, it makes a lot of sense for a child to still be receiving some breast milk because it's protective. Mm-hmm. Um, and it continues to be protective, apparently, from what I've read until they're about six with regards to you know Im- immune protection. So, yeah, but... I don't think I think I'm I'm speculating. I don't think I've got any clear sort of evidence. So what about any link to fertility? With All that? right. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so this isn't yes, yeah, so this isn't isn't my area of expertise, but um the the relationship between night feeding, I suppose, and fertility is that you're suppressing your ovulation for for longer so that you're not going to have your next child so quickly. So, you know, I suppose this is what we see amongst the the hunter-gatherer groups is that their birth spacing is somewhere like four or five years between kids. And one way in which you can facilitate that is by continuing to, to feed. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of brings me back because I know we have a shorter gap between kids on average in our culture. But you mentioned back at the beginning about being the precocial mammals that we are, that mm-hmm. sustaining a long pregnancy is not healthy for like a bit too long. If we were to go as long as our babies need in the womb, we couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Is that a similar effect? Is there a similar risk or struggle if a woman's having too many babies close together? What's that physiological effect for her? There is, I mean, there is something about maternal depletion syndrome, isn't there, when um, when women have lots of babies back to back, that you don't yeah. bounce back, you don't recover your your kind of resilience yeah. between each child. So, yeah. So if we yeah. think about some of those, some of those 18th, 19th century religious groups in the States where women were churning out a child every year and ended up with, you know, 20 or more 
in their lifetimes. I think, you know, if you survived that, and I I don't think a lot of women did survive having a child every year for 20 years, but my God, how decrepit you must (laughs) you must have been absolutely knackered you know I I don't you know it reminds me I spoke to Amanda Detmer who does primate work and she shared an anecdote of one of the the rhesus macaques that they were studying in the in a naturalistic kind of open area had 13 babies Mm. in a row and she said by baby 13 basically mom just would take the baby and drop it off with one of her other daughters that now had babies of her own and was like here you take care of it I'm done (laughs) like I'm out I'm finished and I feel like after 13 she had a really good reason to be pretty much done with that at that point so and is there a benefit though in terms of fertility for mom but the benefit to a child's survival like I remember a while ago there was an uh, a paper that came out and I can't remember who it was I apologize but arguing that really these night wakings were a way for a child to keep mom from having another baby Oh, and yeah. you know, right, but only they phrased it in a more negative way, as a kind of like, yeah, so it's fine. You can sleep train and do whatever because they're really just doing this to manipulate you in a in this way of keeping survival. But I think about, uh, you know, not just maternal depletion, but we think about our evolutionary history. Would a child survive as well too? In if mom's having babies, you know, if you're not getting that attention starting Mm -hmm. at one or two, how good is your ability to survive then? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think it depends kind of like on on whether you're in a high resource setting. You know, children obviously survive much better, uh, closer together in our society than they would in, say, a Brazilian shanty town or something like (laughs) that. If you think about, you know, Nancy Shepard Hughes' work where mothers were were anticipating that the vast majority of the babies that they produced were going to die and they didn't really invest in them until it was clear that they, they could survive infancy. Um, now, the paper that you're talking about, I think, was um, uh, David Haig, one of David Haig's responses to something about bed sharing, and he was arguing. And his thing is about intragenomic conflict and the father's genes and the mother's genes sort of battling through the child to kind of extract the most resources from the mother for this child or preserve the most resources for the mother for her future children. And I think he was arguing that this was one of those phenomena there where it's in the child's best interests, which basically means it's in the father's genes best interests to extract as much resources from the mother as it can for itself. So to continue breastfeeding and, and uh, night waking and waking the mother at night, etc., and, and postponing the possibility of that next sibling coming along for mm-hmm. as long as possible. I, I just feel like it, it does, though. And I guess the question is, yes, in high resource settings, babies survive, but they're not born knowing what resource setting they're coming into. Right, like well, it's, it that depends on whether you go, uh, whether you take into account the the um, uh, origins hypothesis. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, okay. So so, may, well, I mean, there's an argument that they're getting a signal in utero from the mother's nutrition and all the rest of it that they know whether they're going they're being born into a high resource setting or not. Not know, but they're programmed. Uh, yeah, to. what kind of behaviors would we expect to see of a baby that? knows it's in a higher resource setting versus one that knows it's in a lower resource setting? Well, I suppose you're going to see differences in growth to start with. So the low resource setting ones are going to conserve energy. They're not going to grow as fast. They don't want to be as big as adults because they're not going to have the resources to be able to sustain that, etc. I suppose I don't know about how it affects babies cognitively or mentally or whatever, but you might imagine that babies in lower resource settings are going to be more anxious about separation, et cetera, if they're totally reliant on their mother for this meager amount of resources that they're getting. Whereas if you're in a high resource setting, you know, you can just ask anybody to give you something and you probably get it. So I I can imagine that you could hypothesize that there are going to be differences in behavior as well as in biology. It's way outside my area of expertise to know whether that's what happens, though. (laughs) Would you expect breastfeeding differences, behaviors in breastfeeding? You might see differences in milk quality. So you might anticipate that if the milk quality is higher, um, babies may not need to breastfeed for as long 
because maybe they get everything that they want more quickly in more concentrated bursts, and also that there is availability of suitable weaning food. So you might expect longer breastfeeding in lower resource settings because nutrition might be more precarious. It is fascinating to think, I should say, I should have realized thinking about the the prenatal environment still providing information. I just think kind of, as you always say, it's more of that bigger history of they come to the table with these kind of species expectant behaviors mm-hmm. and those have to cross a lot of different environments and be tailored, somewhat nuanced, but the bigger ones still, you know, I think would cross almost all of those environments there. So before we close, because I know we're coming up on time here and I know how busy oh, that went fast. <laughs> Pardon me? That went fast. <laughs> I know. That's why I say I could talk to you for like days here on everything. So it's, but what is, and this is the last one I promise, but I think about people listening and there's people breastfeeding. What about how do we think about the sleep feeding relationship when we're talking about not breastfeeding? What Mm -hmm. are the considerations that a lot of people need to have? I mean, do babies still need to feed as frequently? How does that, would that be affected by bed sharing if they are formula feeding or, you know, a sidecar caught to keep someone close so that they can still meet those cues for feeding? What, what's the take home for people who are not breastfeeding? This is an interesting one, I think. As far as I am concerned, babies, regardless of how they're fed, still need all of the other things that they get from close proximity and contact, etc., and responsiveness from their mums. So, you know, the the mammalian species upon which their food is based doesn't affect any of that, um, or the plant-based plant that their food is based on, whatever, depending on what kind of milk they're having. People have argued that it's the indigestibility of formula milk, cow's milk formula, that that is one of the reasons why people think babies sleep longer on formula. But I think those ideas about frequency of feeding, etc., might have been true 30, 40 years ago when formula was still based on huge cow's milk protein molecules but nowadays you know it's been it's been ground up and broken up and hydrolyzed and homogenated and 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 also increasingly made out of plant proteins but i you know it's now supposed to be digest equally digestible i don't know how equally digestible something is but (laughs) i think it's probably more digested more quickly um, than it used to be. And so formula-fed babies wake as frequently as breastfed babies. The one thing that you can do with a formula-fed baby that you can't do with a breastfed baby, although you can do with a bottle-fed breastfed baby, breast milk-fed baby, is overfill it. And that is one strategy that people sometimes use to kind of keep their babies asleep. But if you're practicing responsive bottle feeding, whether you're giving the baby breast milk in the bottle or, or formula milk in the bottle, then it's going to need as fe- uh, to be fed as frequently as a breastfed baby is. And you're going to need to be aware of its cues in the same way. And therefore, you're going to need to have it as close so that you can be aware of those cues, etc. So, you know, people, people go around in circles with whether mothers who formula feed should or should not sleep with their babies. But I have seen some quite sad posts on social media, for instance, where mothers say, I'm, I've had to stop breastfeeding my baby for whatever reason. You know, I've had to stop breastfeeding my baby, but I bed shared with her. So now I know I've got to get her out of the bed. How do I do that? And it's like, why do you have to get her out of the bed? You, you know, you've been safely bed sharing with her you know how to bed share with her she knows how to bed share with you there's there's like suddenly your relationship with your baby hasn't changed because you've had to stop breastfeeding or I've chosen to stop breastfeeding so I think you know there's 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 a possible difference between mothers who've never breastfed when they bed share and mothers who have done some breastfeeding and bed shared but it's not clear cut we videoed um, a small number of formula feeding mums sleeping with their babies and some of them, but not all of them, put their babies up on pillows next to their faces or put them between pillows and did things that were less safe. 
but not all of them. Some of them put them flat on the mattress, you know, mm-hmm. next to their breasts, like a breastfeeding mom does. So I think it's about it's about you know if a formula feeding mom, if she's never breastfed and she wants to bring her baby into bed, it's about learning how to do that as safely as possible. So I think that you know it's a it's a tricky one because there's a, there's a lot of messages out there about bed sharing is only for breastfeeding mums. I'm not sure that that is a secure position. I think. <laughs> as you said from the baby's perspective they need to signal mom needs to be aware of that because whatever baby's eating i mean whether it is breast or formula like they for calming for you know all sorts of reasons you know Mm -hmm. having irritable babies whatever there's tons of reasons why a mom who's not breastfeeding might want to bring her baby into bed so i think we should be seeking out ways to facilitate that rather than just having blanket recommendations right. that they never do it well that's why i need to have you on again later to talk about the whole safe sleep debate that goes on because <laughs> least three or four days (laughs) exactly that's the because that is a huge one and that is i mean cultural oh my goodness culturally so such a mess there but that will be next time because i I will drag you on next time so before we close because we are now over our hour here what are you working on now two things one is to do with the um the 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 bed sharing safety stuff. So I won't go into that because I can tell you about that another time. Um, And the other one is about trying to help parents understand their baby's sleep biology and work with their baby's sleep biology rather than kind of against it um, in all of this nighttime stuff. So it's a lot of circadian rhythms and sleep pressure and, you know, that kind of stuff. Which is good. And actually, before we close, can you tell us a little bit about Basis and what's available on there for parents and professionals? Because I have always advocated that I feel like every doctor should have to take your normal sleep and safe sleep. I don't know, webinars, whatever we call them nowadays, uh, workshops or whatever it is. Online training, whatever it is. Whatever it is. I'm not even sure. It seems everyone has a new word for it. I never know. I'm like, is this something new or are we doing the same thing and calling it different? Um, Because honestly, they are some of the most amazing things that you have out there. Um, So can you tell parents a little bit about Basis, what it is and what they can get from it? Okay, so Basis is the baby sleep information source, which changed its name in 2015 <laughs> because it was, we launched in 2012 as ISIS, the, ba- the infant sleep information source. And then the year after we uh, launched with the name ISIS, <laughs> some other ISIS appeared. So <laughs> our name. Did they know what they were doing? I know. So we're now the baby sleep information source, but basically it started as a website, which was a repository, a brain dump out of my head to explain all of this stuff to parents and to health professionals because I was getting asked to give so many talks and answer so many questions. I thought I need to put all of this somewhere where people can just access it for themselves. And then of course it's it's evolved and snowballed into information sheets and resources for health practitioners and webinars and workshops and you know um, image banks and you name it. If there's a, a resource somebody's thought we can create, we've created it and put it on the website. So um, go and have a look. It's a treasure trove of information about sleep, particularly what we call normal infant sleep, which means the sleep of biologically normal babies, as in breastfed ones. (laughs) And as I mentioned, if you have a doctor who doesn't listen to you about your baby's sleep, you may want to leave, you know, one of the information sheets for them, or some information about some of the professional development training webinar, whatever we call them on there. Because, you know, I, I do think as if we remember with with doctors, we can ask them to further their education to meet our needs as patients. That is, it's not a, a one direction. It's not that they, we can't ask them to look into something as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really important that, you know, when we talk about some of the advice being given of people telling families to sleep train at birth or beyond, you know, a lot of them don't understand these this intricate relationship, particularly to breastfeeding. And from Mm -hmm. a public health perspective, it's really interesting because I don't know what you have there, but there's such a push for breastfeeding here in North America, but also such the push for independent sleep. And so Mm -hmm. this is why like your understanding of this, it's like a, 
I don't know how to reconcile that tension because yeah. you can't have both, right? Yeah, yeah, they they don't work. They're they're yeah, they seem like mutually exclusive things, and they're just crashing up against each other all the time. Exactly, and so I think a lot of health professionals are missing how intricately this is linked, and so they are saying, yes, you have to breastfeed, and this and that, and that's what's best, and everything, and no, 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 you can't have your baby close to you at night. That's horrible. You're going to ruin them and damage them and kill them and everything, and it's just we need them to understand this link so that parents can be better served for it. So, yes. So as all that to say, Helen has the wonderful programs for people to do this. So get your doctor signed up for it, for everything there. So thank you so, so much for this conversation and for your work. This is what is just, it's years and years of like a treasure trove of work that you've done to go through. So as I said, there's so much more. So we will have to touch on safe sleep next time because that's the other big project here. But thank you so much for being on and sharing all of this with us. And thank you for amplifying it. You do a brilliant job. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you found this valuable for your own parenting or for those new parents around you. Please do check out the Baby Sleep Information Source and try to get all the medical professionals in your life to sign up and take these amazing webinars from BASIS. If every medical professional were properly trained on normal infant sleep and the link to feeding, we might be able to better support new parents. Now join me next week as we switch gears a bit to talk about the social stigma in parenting and the various ways in which that happens from a social anthropological lens. I had the chance to sit down with Dr. Cecilia Tamori, who has looked at this from a variety of angles, and our conversation is one that you don't want to miss. So join me next week, and in the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.